Hello, everyone, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Rick Jackson, senior host and producer at IdeaStream here at the Idea Center at Playhouse Square. I'm pleased to be a part of today's virtual forum, a conversation about how Cleveland neighborhoods are preparing for the new normal brought on by the coronavirus pandemic. Now, earlier this month, as you know, Governor DeWine outlined steps to gradually open Ohio's economy, our retail stores, restaurants, our bars, our office situations, pretty much grappling with new restrictions right now designed to keep people safe to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Additionally, many of the large public gatherings that bring people together on a regular basis as a community have been postponed or outright canceled. These new realities are causing many people to kind of rethink and reimagine the way we construct and use physical spaces and how we connect and convene a neighborhood and its residents. Today we're going to talk with several neighborhood leaders about the steps that they're taking to connect residents, and we're going to help them confront this new reality. As in every City Club forum, of course, you can participate with your questions. You may text them. The number is 330-541-5794. It's on your screen, 330-541-5794. And as always, you can tweet them. That is at the City Club, and we have folks who will work those questions in, get them to me to pose to our panel. Now, before I introduce our speakers, I'd like to also take a moment to thank the Generous City Club members, sponsors, and donors who support all of these virtual forums. For a full list, you can visit cityclub.org slash thank you. If you'd like to join them in supporting this work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org. Oh, she, she put donate in there. cityclub.org slash donate. Cityclub org slash donate or consider becoming a member of the city club to learn more visit cityclub.org slash members a lot of addresses there for you now for our panel as you can see joining us today joe duffy real estate development director for the union miles development corporation good morning joe good morning Rick. good to see you thank you for doing this ricardo leon is with us executive director for the metro west community development organization ricardo good morning good morning and karis ting is here asia town project manager for midtown Cleveland. Inc. Good morning to you. Good morning. Joe, start us off here. There's so many different things that we've talked about before that the pandemic has brought to the surface that maybe were there already and we just hadn't noticed. There are so many situations that I know you wanted to kind of illuminate, let people know that we haven't thought about this before, not just in your neighborhood, but in so many neighborhoods. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks, Rick. Um, so for those who uh, may not be aware, the Union Miles neighborhood is uh, right in the heart of Southeast Cleveland. We are bordered to the west by Slavic Village, to the east by Lee Harvard, and uh, south of Pinsman and the Mount Pleasant neighborhood going down towards Garfield Heights. Um, I really think it's important to understand um, racial dynamics when understanding some of the issues that challenge Union Miles. Um, we are a 95% African-American neighborhood, and uh, we, we have the, uh, I would say, the unfortunate distinction of sharing the 44105 zip code, which um, achieved national fame for um, counting more home foreclosures per quarter uh, during the height of the 2007 and 8 foreclosure crisis. Um, so, there has been uh, there have been some pretty severe economic challenges here that um, are, are pretty directly tied to the issue of race and, and equity. Um, so, in terms of what we're doing, um, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, um, a lot of the, the 
classic kind of community building types of events that we and many others community development corporations um, do to, to kind of mend and heal and, and uh, create unity within the neighborhood um, are really on hold. Um, so it's challenging for us to to navigate that when you you know we can't safely um, encourage folks to come and gather in the same uh, proximity. So um, you know we're we also struggle with the digital divide. You know a lot of those of us with um, internet access or have been able to continue on um, working and, and communicating with our peers via um, programs like this and 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 others. Um, a lot of folks just don't have that option. So when we're looking at um, how we're helping our businesses and our residents stay connected, um, you know that's that issue has definitely come to the forefront. Um, so for us, you know, we can't just send out a, a neighborhood-wide email and expect um, everyone to receive the information on the resources that are always changing week by week and day by day. Um, so a lot of that takes takes deliberate action on our part to, to call folks, um, send out paper mailings, um, post notices um, in the local stores and shops, um, and really try to, to leverage some of those alternate communication strategies. Mm -hmm. um, our overall premise, of course, is that everywhere, retail stores, restaurants, bars, as we said, grappling with res restrictions, um, we're trying to prevent the spread. And spread is an important word because it's what we need to do, distance ourselves. But that's easier in many spots than in others. Um, Ricardo, you said the same thing, really. This is exacerbating a lot of issues in your neighborhood that were present but not always mentioned. No, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what we have found is that, um, you know, there are a lot of the cracks in the system were already present. COVID has uh, shown a light on them, right? And has made them much more apparent and quite frankly, much more painful than they were before. Um, you know, residents have historically not been connected, right? When we think about the digital divide, you know, about 40% of our neighborhood doesn't have regular access to, to high speed internet. Um, when you think about many of our businesses, a lot of our businesses and our entrepreneurs um, were either kind of home-based entrepreneurs that had just really started opening their businesses and were just moving towards brick and mortar, um, or even and even some of our established businesses, you know, some that have been in business five, ten years plus, um, maybe didn't have the systems in place to be able to report um, out their financials and in the way that you know some of these opportunities that are coming to the table um, need them to. And so we're seeing that there's just a big distance between um, kind of what we expect or, or kind of the baseline of what we uh, view as like the normal, right? And then realizing that many of the folks in our community don't meet that baseline and probably have historically not met that baseline because um, quite frankly, there were really no systemic interventions in place that helped them get to that point. Um, and so with that, um, you know, you couple COVID on top of that, and now you're seeing kind of dramatic shifts in the way that the, or the community has um, like organized around it and, and just kind of how the community is responding to it. And again, how the CDC as an organization um, understanding that, you know, at the, at first and foremost, our residents are, you know, come first, right? Our community is, is what's most important to us. We are responding to their needs to the best of our ability, you know, however we can. Okay, thanks. We, we've likely all seen the pictures from this weekend of restaurants that didn't enforce distancing, even lifting travel restrictions yesterday. The state still has that 10-person, six-foot limit in effect. Harris, you've said there's a cultural concern in Asiatown that taking care of the workers, many of them family, outweighs this need to reopen and repopulate. 
Could that become problematic if other parts of the city effectively get a head start on attracting people back that maybe you don't have? You know, I think that, um, yeah, a lot of these businesses are facing the same challenges that Joe and Ricardo just spoke to as well. Um, with the added concern, of, I think there's just a hyper um, um, awareness of the safety concerns. And um, one business owner said, you know, we need the money, we need the business, but we're not going to reopen because health is a priority. And so we've seen that in just the ways that businesses have responded, um, putting in really stringent um, safety barriers and, um, you know, um, take out windows, plastic barriers, wearing masks or enforcing um, customers to wear masks and gloves. Some, some grocery stores are even requiring um, temperature checks of everybody who comes in the, in the grocery store. So I think we've just seen, um, on the flip side, actually, really strong response of just be, wanting to protect, yes, their staff, their families, but also the rest of the community. And I think that seeing that news around the city um, could add to that fear. And, and um, it, you know, it, it is hard. It's, it's really hard um, with these businesses that already um, margins are really limited for a lot of a lot of these restaurants you know we expect um, oftentimes we expect Chinese food to be cheap um, and so their margins that they're making are not as high as um, some other restaurants so I do think that that can be that can be challenging okay. when we look up hot spots in Cleveland we often see Ohio City described as one of Ohio's most trendy welcoming neighborhoods for all ages ethnicities lifestyles but even after that decided growth this last decade there's fewer than 10,000 people there slightly more than 2% of Cleveland's populace. It's a great spot, but not everybody's go-to. And yet we've heard so much recently about closing down streets, moving restaurants into the streets. Joe, is part of today's message that new rules and new approaches have to consider more than just what's good for one attention-grabbing spot? Oh, I, I'd say absolutely, Rick. Um, so, you know, I think that that may be a great decision to pursue in Ohio City. Um, whereas here in Union Miles, um, we have around 20,000 people in the neighborhood, um, but we do not have a concentrated commercial district, um, you know, analogous to West 25th Street or um, other kind of more dense commercial retail strips like that. Um, so we have kind of more scattered um, individual business owners um, we're at the retail level and, and some larger industrial companies. So we're kind of more focused individually on, on those folks we know who are there and trying to get them what they need directly. Um, for us, we also have a, um, a handful of different workforce development programs that focus on different trades. Um, the Building Futures Program focuses on home rehab. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we're still um, kind of working to restore the, the health of the housing market. Um, we also do a landscaping program, but, you know, our, our focus as an organization um, under the leadership of our board and our executive director um, is really, really focused on investing in the social capital of the neighborhood. Harris, follow that for me. The aspiration that not everything works as well in certain neighborhoods. What does Midtown Cleveland suggest we need in Asia town that's maybe not being spoken about? Mm, I think that one of the challenges is, you know, we have these market solutions to um, put more patio furniture, close streets to enable more people to dine in, which I think is great. But I think for some of these Asia town restaurants, um, 
the that solution isn't as um, as viable. I think it would help, but we've seen these restaurants experience for longer a decline in business. So even since mid-February, mm -hmm. just due to the perception that um, people could be more likely to get the coronavirus in, in Asia town. Um, so um, I think that we just need targeted support for, for these businesses who, um, you know, need, um, some of them might have to make the decision between reopening and risking their health and um, uh, and making their rent or being able to continue. And I think we just really need to protect them because I think that these businesses are really the lifeblood of our neighborhoods. Um, they're pathway for new American entrepreneurs and workers, um, their livelihoods, but they're also, um, they're the lifeblood of our neighborhoods. I think, um, especially in Asia Town, it's a regional hub for people from all over, from Columbus, uh, Pittsburgh, Youngstown, even come to shop and eat here. And obviously, that um, we can't do that right now. And so, um, I I think another. I know this is kind of a little bit of a tangent, but I think that our um, our cooks and our restaurants are really our culture bearers. And they're so dedicated to their craft and keeping their keepers of our culture through food. And I know that's true across a lot of different communities. I think that's something that the three of um, the three of us probably have in common in our communities. Um, and so one thing that we're really excited to start doing is we were able to get a grant to um, do bulk purchases of meals from these various restaurants, just rotating amongst the different restaurants in Asia Town and to make them available to people who need food in the community, almost like a separated um, community meal, which I think will um, kind of feed that um, spirit of gathering together um, that we talked about in that first question, just the need to build community um, in different ways while also supporting these businesses. When we talk about building, uh, Ricardo, bigger than just streets, urban space, parks, roadways, is this the time that we adjust and prioritize and reshape how we think about how we use the public spaces that we already have? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's something that's incredibly important now. And, and this is something that we struggle with in our neighborhood. And I, many other, you know, vulnerable communities like ours have the same issue where we have very limited green space, right? We have historically been a neighborhood that has had very limited access to green space and outdoor space. And so um, starting to look at how can we take some of the spaces that you know are used have historically been used for cars and transportation, and can we start changing it so that it is um, putting you know more so on pedestrian access? I think that's incredibly important. Um, I, I echo some of the same kind of concerns, uh, you know, as, as what you know we're seeing in Asian Town, and, and many of our businesses, quite frankly, aren't necessarily built right now in their space where they are um, to cater to some of these market forces. Um, and so if we can start looking at actually just changing the dynamics of the neighborhood itself and the way that uh, the neighborhood has been planned for, um, I think then we can get to a, to a positive solution. And it's something that we're currently going through a master planning process that really just, just really started. Um, you know, we have been working on it for quite some time. There was supposed to be a very kind of public uh, engagement part that, in piece that came through in April. And obviously because of COVID that hasn't happened. Um, you know, we'll be doing kind of a very uh, kind, of, kind of more of like a virtual public launch here soon. Um, but that's something that we now we need to consider, right? I, you know, transportation was already a part of that plan and, and green space. But I think now more than ever, we see that, um, again, something that maybe we took for granted is actually something that's incredibly necessary and vital um, for the long term future and health of our neighborhood. And we need to be open to, to changing the, the way that we historically think of our neighborhoods, particularly in our inner city neighborhoods. Next number again, if you have questions for the panel, uh, we'll start that at the top of the hour. 
The text number again, 330-541-5794. 330-541-5794. Um, Joe, follow what Ricardo was just saying there. there. There really is a need to reshape internally. Yes. No, yeah. Thank you. Um, well, I did want to mention R Ricardo was talking about the role of green space in uh, the Metro West area. And I know um, Union Miles, along with several other neighborhoods, were identified in a recent report from the Trust for Public Land as being green space deserts. So, you know, I think this is just another one of those layers of, of inequity that's gone back decades in, in terms of lack of investment and, and cultural amenities uh, in certain communities. So that's being brought to the surface as well. I know folks, you don't have a park down the street they can go to and, and experience some community interaction um, or one that they feel safe and going to. That's, that's a challenge which we're working on. And I think that that really highlights the role of community development um, overall, which is you know, all of us fill uh, gaps in where the private market has, what I would say, failed. So um, we're all working to do that. We're all funding contingents and, and go out and advocate for those resources to be allocated by whatever mechanisms may be available. Um, so I think we're gonna see an, an intensification in need. Um, you know, that's not new. You know, what's new is how we react to that and how we, we respond to the community and, and stay in touch with folks and, uh, and try, to, try to move forward as a group. No, not that we need to follow Oakland or Seattle or New York or anybody else who's talked about closing streets and reshaping the parks, et cetera. But what are some of the ideas maybe any of you have heard that are kind of avant-garde that Cleveland hasn't thought of before? Um, Karis, I'll let you start. Are we hearing anything out there that's really revolutionary for Northeast Ohio? Sure. Um, that puts a lot of pressure on the <laughs> responses. But... <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, you know, there's, it's been a conversation that we've heard about in the news and that I know some of us are jumping in on too, just this conversation to be able to um, transform space to be for pedestrians and for, um, you know, for the people rather than um, for, for cars. And so transforming parking lots into dining areas or public spaces, um, some sidewalks or, um, or um, lawn tree lawns to be able to put furniture there and have amenities for pedestrians. Um, I think that is uh, a conversation that I hope continues and I hope sticks even after this. Um, I think that's really, really needed in our city. I think this also has, just to build on what Joe was saying, um, really emphasize the need and urgency for, uh, for community building too. And, um, you know, I think uh, in our neighborhood and our effort in Asia Town is relatively new, um, I just started in the past year and our community organizer in January, but um, with COVID has really just kind of has spurred um, building resident networks and building communities um, because of the urgency, because of the need. So, um, you know, we're seeing in um, an, a community that can be very isolated, people coming together, um, just out of need being able to res uh, share resources through, um, we use uh, this app WeChat often, which is a Chinese uh, chat uh, group messaging um, app. Um, 
And so that's been that's been really powerful. And I think that's built a lot of energy. We actually were able to have a couple of residents that gathered together. They had lost their jobs because of COVID-19 and had discovered their love for baking and have come together to, um, we're really excited actually, uh, they were ever just able to get funding for this, um, but come together to bake, bake um, food desserts, um, dessert translated from Chinese literally is sweethearts. So we're calling it Asia town sweethearts and they're delivering care packages to their neighbors. So baked goods, masks, gloves, notes of encouragement to build that community care. And I don't know if that is something that would have happened if not for these circumstances. So I think again, just this urgency and opportunity to build new networks and um, uh, resident connections is really powerful. Joe, same thing. Are we hearing things that are new and different that maybe they're COVID inspired? Maybe not. It's just time for them. Yeah. Um, well, we were we were fortunate to receive um, some funding through the Cleveland Foundation and the various partners um, with the rapid response uh, grants that went out. Um, and I think you know maybe maybe more so than some other CDCs, we do we are kind of lean towards um, the social issues. Um, in a way, but so so with our grant, we're providing food and and supplies for seniors um, in partnership with the Little Africa Food Collaborative, um, and that's that's not only um, supplying those services to Union Miles, but also to Mount Pleasant, Lee Harvard, and uh, some other surrounding areas. So, I think the issue is the issue that the challenges in Union Miles are not unique to Union Miles. They're perhaps exacerbated and, and obvious here, but there are also larger issues that, that cross over into other neighborhoods. So I think um, the COVID crisis being such a widespread um, and abrupt uh, shock to the system that we've been kind of operating within um, is really encouraging a spirit of collaboration across neighborhood lines in a way that I think is, is really healthy. Um, so we're, you know, we're fortunate to have strong relationships with our neighboring CDCs, um, Mount Pleasant and Slavic Village and, and um, Burton Belcar. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's a matter, all, all of the pressures that were in place before are still there, but I think they're, the best case scenario is that we react to that um, with more with more communication amongst each other. And, and you know, in Union Miles, our service area crosses over four city council wards. So I think you know, there's there's an opportunity there for um, some of our public leaders to to also collaborate as I know they have been um, so we're so I think as we get through this there, there's a chance that we can actually build stronger community and result of the crisis Metro Health Medical Center right there with you helping as well have they brought in ideas that maybe folks thought, okay, that's different. Let's try that for Clark Fulton for the other areas there. Yeah, absolutely. So Metro Health has been, you know, a great partner through this entire process. I mean, they've helped to kind of from the onset, just providing the organization support and just kind of what, how to deal with COVID, right? You know, thinking back 10, 11 weeks ago, I think we, it was foreign to all of us. Um, since then, they have really ramped up a lot of their work, particularly around their trauma-informed care work. Um, I know they've had uh, so like the these like trauma learning circles where they're open to the community where folks are allowed to jump in and have conversations with one another, right? Because that's one of the things that we're finding. I think kind of very you know building off what both Karis and Joe said. Um, you know, 
this has really brought the community together, right? Uh, a lot in, in ways that was completely unexpected to us in, in many ways. Uh, and, and I think Metro Health has helped kind of lead that charge with us as well. Um, whether it's just engaging with folks and connecting with folks in, in ways that we traditionally didn't, right? We're a community where kind of knocking on doors, flyering, door knocking has always been kind of our main way of getting to folks. And obviously because of COVID, we can't do that. So we switched gears and we've literally just been picking up the phone, calling folks, right? We've probably called about 2,500 people so far. We've still got another maybe 2,500 to 3,000 folks, you know, in the database to continue calling. And one of the main things that we hear back from folks is just saying thank you. You know, thank you for calling and talking to us. Thank you for letting us know that somebody's out there listening and cares, right? Um, we've also been able through um, a lot of our work reignite some stuff that had maybe just kind of gone to the wayside for some years. And what I mean by that is we were able to reintroduce Meals on Wheels into the neighborhood. And we have, you know, 60 plus seniors now getting food delivery on a weekly basis. Um, we've also we were also really able to reignite and, and add, you know, some fire to our, our community garden committee and our community garden initiatives. And we've got many folks working through, you know, in, in improving their community gardens and really um, helping, you know, bring that back into the community, something that maybe we hadn't seen for a few years as a lot of our empty lots started to become developed and things of that nature. Um, and so in many ways, you know, Metro Health and many of our partners, you know, have all worked together to ensure that we are bringing as many resources to the table as possible um, to the benefit of our community. When we talk about working together, I know people think sometimes CDCs are kind of insular. You're worried about your neighborhood. Other than the City Club bringing all of you together today, is there good communication amongst CDCs? Hey, I found something that may not be great for me, but could be great for you. Joe, is there that interplay? Um, I, I would say absolutely. Um, and I, I'd say I think there's been a really positive trend in that direction. Um, I've been working in different CDCs since 2012. And I'd say over the last two years or so, um, Cleveland Neighborhood Progress has done a great job corralling us. Um, we have a, an economic development working group that's been um, comprised of, of representatives from all the CDCs across the city for the most part, um, east and west sides, south and closer to lake. So, um, and that's been, we've been meeting every two weeks, if not, if not more frequently throughout the crisis. Um, to get just because all of these these programs and and grants and and loans and the the you know the, the laws and policies are shifting so quickly, um, it's just been a great opportunity to kind of get on the same page, hear what's going on in different neighborhoods, and I think that that really does a lot to um, kind of prevent that sort of insular thinking because when you know it's true when you work in one specific geographic area, you know that's a possibility that you might. Kind of lose that that broader perspective but um i think we're, we're on a good track with that and I, I think we all understand that we're all working towards uh overall the, the same things you know the issues in union miles might be different than um another neighborhood with a considerably more de private development pressure but the, the role of the cdc is still there to to kind of steady the course for what's best for the community I will let the others answer as well, but I wanted to remind you, uh, folks who are watching and listening in, in a few minutes, we will be turning to your questions. If you have questions for our panelists, text them to 330-541-5794. Unlike at the City Club, I can't see you, but I have uh, four screens up here, and I've got like eight or nine questions already, so I know you're paying close attention. But I did want to let uh, the others weigh in on that question. Karis, what do you think? Is there great communication? 
I think that's absolutely true what Joe just said. I think there's been ongoing collaboration across the different CDCs um, through uh, various efforts, um, even from when this started. I know a lot of CDCs started putting together resource lists and that we were sharing those back and forth, adding to each others, um, because I think it's just stronger. Why duplicate the work and um, be able to spread it to all of our neighborhoods? Um, I know at least for people on the call, uh, like in this panel, um, we started doing some of our census work. We've been sharing ideas back and forth between different neighborhoods. And uh, we had done kind of like family art kits, activity kits with census information and like census themed coloring books and activity books and pass that on to um, Metro West and the Young Latino Network. And they've like really blown that out and uh, are doing really incredible work with that too. So it's been really cool to just trade resources back and forth. Ricardo, wrap this segment for us. No, absolutely. I agree. Um, it's been amazing. It's been amazing seeing all the collaboration among CDCs. And you know, it's funny. It's historically, I feel like a lot of, you know, for whatever reason, you kind of always just partner with like the CDCs that are right around you. Right. Um, but we're seeing like cross city collaboration, you know, the Karis's point, like, you know, we've been partnering with Midtown, Slavic Village, others, again, just trying to get um, any information and resources that are available out there that can help anyone in our community, try and get them as widespread as possible. Um, and if an initiative worked in our neighborhood, then there's no reason it can't work in, you know, in, in any other neighborhood in the city and vice versa. And so we've just been trying to really the best of our ability. Um, and it starts even from just like a leadership position, right, from all of the executive directors working with Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, our intermediary, um, and just sharing information, resources, connecting with each other. Uh, and, and just me, even me personally, you know, as like the newest, youngest CDC director, um, having folks that I can lean on and help me out. Uh, in situations that, that are unfamiliar, right? Um, it, it's honestly, it's, it's been a blessing. And, and if we didn't have such a strong CDC infrastructure, I think our, the city would be in a significantly worse place. Great, thank you. I think another example is, um, Ricardo, as you were talking, I just remembered from the leadership from the Cleveland Foundation, um, we were seeing that there's a lot of translation barriers, especially mm -hmm. in the beginning of this as information was coming out. And on top of that, the digital divide, so not having access mm -hmm. to internet and technology. And so the Cleveland Foundation led an effort with Ricardo, um, us at Midtown and Asia Town, and the smart development uh, with mailers translated into Spanish, Arabic, and Chinese that could be sent out to targeted zip codes around the city to make that information accessible. Yep. Thing, the Age of Town Project Manager for Midtown Cleveland. I'm also joined by Joe Duffy, Real Estate Development Director for the Union Miles Development Corporation, and Ricardo Leon, Executive Director for the Metro West Community Development Organization. I'm Rick Jackson of IdeaStream. I'm going to turn now to the portion where all of your questions come into play, and I've been looking ahead. Some of them were great, guys. Um, one of the first ones that came in, what part, it asks, will teens play in reopening our city, and what's being prepared to help them reconnect? We've paid so much attention to the young and the old. What about teens, Ricardo? How do they play in? No, absolutely. Um, so one of our efforts has really been relying on through our MyCom. We're a regional MyCom coordinator for all of our neighborhoods as well as Ohio City and Tremont and really relying on our youth through MyCom to help bring ideas to the table, but also let them know that they can still be in leadership positions, right? And helping them build that leadership within them. And it's honestly, it's amazing seeing the ideas that kids bring to the table because they see things differently than we do, right? And they have inherently have different challenges than we do. Um, and again, I think to, to kind of the, what we were talking about earlier in the segment was just that, um, those those differences and issues are being magnified now right and and i think what's most important is us being able to give give kids teens um a voice and being able to you know be decision makers at the table and understand that they are valued 
And so we've really been relying on our partners as much as possible. We were able to get some grants out the door um, for folks that were doing kind of rapid response work um, directly with teens and youth in the community. Um, and, and that we've seen that um, really come full circle and now getting engaged with kids in the neighborhood uh, and ensuring, again, ensuring that we have them at the table as we're trying to make decisions, you know, for the community moving forward. And again, that will wrap into a lot of the other work that we're doing, you know, along the community master plan and others. Joe, you seeing similar thoughts? Um, yeah, yes, yes and no. Um, similar thoughts, I'd say our, our execution is a little bit different. I know we're, um, we've been working on some different planning and, and placemaking projects across the neighborhood, really through the lens of uh, fostering civic pride. Um, some of those have included uh, we've some, some mural funding through the Gun Foundation and National Endowment of the Arts. Um, we've been hoping to really engage our local um, local school district uh, facilities in the execution of some of those murals. Um, so that's we're kind of on hold with ho holding public meetings on that right now, but. Um, you know, I think teens and youth in general have tremendous uh, value to, to, to communicate and, and input because you know, they are going to be the next generation of folks that we, we hope to have uh, stewarding our communities. So, um, you know, we, we do work with a lot of seniors. Um, you know, I think maybe that is sort of catalyzed by the COVID crisis and, and who's most vulnerable um, from a health perspective. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that would be a great focus for, for all of us to, to look into further. We've had several questions pop up about students. Um, you mentioned murals though, Joe. Karis, you have a mural festival, which I understand had to be moved back. Are there other issues coming up because of what's going on? Yeah, so um, I actually think that um, murals are, this is a great time for more murals. Um, I think we really need just more community um, pride and the vibrancy that murals can bring. Um, so Pow Wow is a mural festival, an international mural festival started by a group in Hawaii. Um, and coming to Cleveland this year, and this would be the first time that it's been in the Midwest. And we're really excited to be able to host it in Cleveland and in Midtown. Um, so it has been pushed back to September. Um, in terms of challenges, I think it's actually been um, really great. Just shout out to Joyce Wong and Joe Lanzalotta, who really are spearheading the effort on this. Um, but I, um, to my understanding, a lot of the artists have um, been able to reschedule and come at that time. And programming partners have just kind of con reconfigured their programming to allow for social distancing. So, you know, initially the idea was that it would be a huge community gathering with lots of programming. And so I think that's just shifted a little bit. There's still going to be programming art talks. Um, I believe we have a couple of different artist partners like 12 Literary Arts and Graffiti Heart and a couple others who are going to be hosting programming, but just reconfiguring it to allow for social distancing, to allow people to watch at a further distance um, and even kind of have some maybe drive-through type programming to pick up gear and watch movies or um, or artist talks that way. Thank you. Yeah, certainly just one example of many changes we've had to make for this summer. Uh, Joe, question I'm going to toss at you here. It says, which creative solutions might allow Cleveland to respond to the needs of minority business owners more effectively, especially given the clearly failed federal response? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Great question. Um, well, I think we could start with um, the digital divide uh, being a focus. Um, I know a lot of folks in our neighborhood don't have access to broadband in the same way. Um, just from an infrastructure standpoint, you know, that literally the, the lines on the poles can't carry as much data. So I guess you could call that digital redlining in a way. So I would like to see that change. We would like to see that change. Um, I know I'd, I'd be curious to, to talk further after after our panel, but I know that um, old Brooklyn had has like a, their public Wi-Fi program that's been going on for a while. And I, I know we were been talking a little bit about what some options with doing something similar citywide might be. Um, so, I, you know, for our folks who who may operate a retail business that's been shut down for the last two and a half months, you know, they're at a competitive disadvantage if they were to um, seek to diversify to online sales. So um, we've distributed uh, some communication materials with some, some tips on how to do that. Um, I think if, if this is going to be an ongoing trend of every, you know, commerce and, um, general communication overall becoming effectively digitized, um, you know, we're going to have to make that that jump in order to participate. So um, also, I should mention, we have been working with uh, the Mount Pleasant office on a, a Southeast business collaborative project um, that's been kind of put on hold with the crisis, um, but we've been really looking to um, develop um, a group of people who are who are active and passionate with ties to the neighborhoods um, from from a business and entrepreneurship standpoint, and, and really have that group um, as a working group or committee or you know however that develops um, really make minority business development and and uh, a focus and and help our folks uh, have the same opportunities um, that anyone else has. Um, to, to generating wealth and, and providing for their families. Ricardo, Ricardo, I know you want to jump in on this one as well. We've seen and yeah. read so much about black and brown businesses not getting access to money. More importantly, though, not getting access to attention. Absolutely. No, it's actually, that's something that we're seeing, and it's an echo, you know, Joe's sentiments, and, and Karis, you may be seeing this as well in the community, is um, not only are our businesses fundamentally not in a position to be able to go after a lot of these resources, right, because they're so sophisticated, but then also the language barrier. Many of our entrepreneurs are Latinx, right, and and for many of them, English is their second language, and um, to Karis's point earlier about, like, the flyer that we had sent out, most of the information and resources that are coming out are only monolingual, uh, and so that has been a big issue in, um, you know, like that, that, the pop that population of entrepreneurs is kind of completely left, um, you know, in the dark. And so we have really gone, gone to extreme lengths to try and hold many of our businesses hands and kind of go guiding them through all of these processes. We have had a limited success in getting some businesses, some of these federal dollars. Um, but then we were actually able to thankfully, um, because of generous support from one of our funders, community development advisors, we were actually able to roll out a direct assistance uh, grant program to, for our small businesses. And so we're actually going to be able to pay um, for two months of rent or mortgage payments for many of our small businesses. Um, and so we actually rolled that out just a little over a week and a half ago. And we've already got 14 businesses that have applied. 
Um, so that just shows the great need. And we know about another 10 or so that are probably going to be applying this week. And so that, you know, we were able, luckily, we were in a position where we were able to get some funding to help out. But the reality is, if had we not had that opportunity, um, many of our businesses, you know, there was a fear that many of our businesses would have closed and closed for good. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately, you know, the federal response didn't really take into account a lot of these factors. But um, luckily, we were able to kind of come in with an intervention that is helping our folks. Uh, and, and we'll hopefully, um, through some of the some of the um, systems that are built into the program, which will help them kind of figure out, you know, their carrying costs, their budget, help them um, figure out some forecasts into the future, we can help them be in a better position to then go after those other funding opportunities, you know, as this continues to develop, you know, assuming that we do, you know, this will be something that we'll be dealing with for at least the rest of the year. Federal, federal, state, and city are a little slower to react than maybe a CDC could be. We had a question which was similar. I think you just answered a lot of it, Ricardo, uh, given the, the increased need for connectivity, excuse me, and access <clears throat> to employment education. They were asking how do CDCs work to connect residents? You just answered some of that, but what else can people do? Do they need to reach out to you or are you looking for them? How do we connect A and B? Ricardo. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I mean, so we have, you know, again, I think we and every other CDC has a pretty good database of folks that they engage with. But something that, we, you know, we're, we can be completely honest about is that more often than not, those folks that we that we engage with are the folks that we always engage with. Right. And in every community, there is a population of folks that for a variety of reasons, many of them valid, they they don't feel the need to be engaged. They don't want to be engaged or or they have historically felt that it was was not necessary. Right. And so that is where then we need to start thinking of unique solutions and, and bringing ideas the table and so that's why we were able to take our existing database merge it with a few others you know from other organizations in the neighborhood um, and and create a much more exhaustive list of folks um, but then also again looking at things like a mailer right trying to get information to every household in the neighborhood um, trying to, to robo text right instead of um, instead of you know using like a newsletter or social media actually getting it right in people's phones right right in their hand um, although I will say our social media has kind of skyrocketed quite a bit, our engagement in social media, because folks are looking for their information um, wherever they can. And so, again, just trying to the best of our ability, the way that we get to folks um, and willingly, you know, leveraging our relationships and our partnerships and understanding that as a community, right, all of the organizations and institutions and stakeholders in the community, if we can all work on this problem together, the solution together, we can get to a much farther reach. We have a lot of questions that are coming in specific to one person or the other. I'll use some of those as well, but certainly folks can feel free to weigh in. This one's specific to Joe Duffy and Union Miles. Question is, will increased tree planting be a part of the movement to convert vacant lots to green spaces? You know, that's, that's, that may seem, well, the short answer is yes, um, but it's, it's actually a more complicated topic than just we have land and want to improve the air quality. Um, but I, I'll say we, yeah, we've been working with the West, Western Reserve Land Conservancy um, on a tree planting project or really more of an initiative across the neighborhood. Um, uh, yes, as, as I like to say, we are blessed with the asset of abundant vacant land, um, which you know, I, I love trees and I think that we should have more trees across the uh, forest city. But, um, you know, some residents have some serious reservations about um, someone coming in and planting a bunch of trees across the street from their house. Um, you know, in one particular project off of East 93rd Street, 
Um, there's basically a, a landfill in which some construction debris was was dumped, and the land is virtually unusable for any other purpose. So and it's quite a large swath of land. So um, in some of our community outreach leading up to um, tree planting, the neighborhood block club there expressed strong resistance to, um, you know, uh, a, a group of people coming in to plant trees um, for, for safety concerns. They were, they were worried that, um, that people would hide behind the trees and scope out when they're coming and going from their homes and, and uh, that would lead to break-ins. And, and those are all very valid concerns. So, um, so I think in that case, we reached a, a, a healthy compromise. There are going to be some trees planted, but it won't be kind of at the full on reforestation concept that was originally proposed. Um, you know, we're also working on parks. Um, we're working on one of our own that's developing at East 93rd and Harvard. Um, there will be some additional trees planted there. Um, as well as a few other sites across the neighborhood. Um, you know, if, if, if any of our funding partners would like to help us uh, develop a, a tree plan, you know, I'm sure we would be open to helping facilitate that as well. Um, so yeah, I think it, it would do a lot to help beautify the, the neighborhood and, and improve our, our health uh, via air quality. Thanks, Joe. I've, uh want to remind folks of the number 330-541-5794 if you want to text in a question we still have a little bit of time left this question is for you Karis it says I've seen Asia town businesses have more safety precautions than most other businesses yet some people mistakenly think they're more at risk for COVID-19 how do we change that perception yeah, um, it's really ironic, right, that um, there is that perception, but that Asiatown businesses are really, um, really diligent about safety precautions. Um, and so I think it just it just takes all of the public. We um, actually, another example of CDC collaboration is I think a lot of the other CDCs when we started, when um, all of this started, um, took anti-discrimination statements and put them on their websites and social media to say that, you know, there's no place for, um, hate that this virus is not associated with any particular race. Um, and I think we just need more public statements like that out there. Um, I think part of it is just the the discourse about it. Um, you know, uh, in February, a lot of the media about COVID-19 featured Chinatowns across the country, even though they had nothing to do with um, those neighborhoods. And I think that kind of um, that uh, fuels that perception um, publicly and um, it, that incorrect perception. And so I think we need to do what we can to counter that. Another question coming in, guys. Uh, have the revised methods of community outreach, digital and mailers, had any noticeable effect on community involvement or interest? More or less about the same long question here. What about the different groups, seniors, teens, et cetera? Ricardo, I'll go to you first. Yeah, no, I think we've seen that we have seen a pretty robust response again um, to, to the point I said earlier, you know, the biggest thing we're getting from folks is just saying thank you, right? Thank you for willingly reaching out to us. Um, and then also through the method of engaging with them, right? We've been asking them like specific questions and, and how can we best serve them? You know, what are their needs and how, um, you know, how can we help fulfill their needs? And that has actually given us then kind of the playbook to go back and propose ideas, go to funders and ask for, for opportunities. Um, and so really taking a resident driven approach 
to the types of uh, interventions that we are presenting to the community has really been our goal. Because while we may think, you know, while I may think that, you know, my neighbors need one thing, after I talk to my neighbors, I may find out they need something different. Um, and so certainly wanting to, um, you know, make sure that we are taking that into account whenever we're presenting ideas or proposals or, you know, opportunities to the community. So I, I in my opinion, I think there's been a bit of an uptick um, in, in just, you know, traditional engagement um, because folks are wanting to be engaged more than ever. Same idea. Uh, same idea in the Asian town community. Are you seeing more, less, or the same kind of involvement as you've tried to stamp up uh, or step up efforts? Yeah, I think building off of that, um, I think the biggest the biggest difference is in building trust. Um, a lot of what we're doing is, um, yes, engagement, and yes, we want to see um, more civic engagement, but um, a lot of what we're doing right now is building trust in the neighborhood. Um, so historically, um, the CD, uh, Historically, this neighborhood has had various different CDCs serving them. And so to have a dedicated Asia Town team is actually really, um, really new for, for Cleveland. And so um, because of that, I think at first when we were reaching out, the response was, who, like, who are you? We've never had this before. Why are you here? What, you know, are you the city? <laughs> what, what types of resources are you offering? And so being able to, um, use this as an opportunity to build trust over time, I think we're really seeing that people are starting to know who we are to, um, be able to turn to us for, for help. And I think that's, we, we, um, love to see that. It brings up a great point, Joe. Are you seeing more community involvement, more people saying, I know who you are? <laughs> um, well, I, I think it really it brings up the point. Um, I think in some cases, the answer to that is definitely yes. But for us to effectively do our job, we really have to meet people where they are. And, you know, depending on someone's age or or perhaps their socioeconomic status, you know, they might, they might be reading our e-newsletters or they might be on our social media or they might have to wait until a, a piece of mail shows up at their house. So meeting people where there are is really the only way to ensure, you know, kind of covering everyone. And, um, you know, with, with the digital divide, I think we're kind of at a little bit of a disadvantage in that area because it's, it's easiest and, and, you know, most just practical to communicate electronically right now. So, um, you know, the fact that we can't hold public meetings, um, you know, and, and, and directly engage with our groups of constituents at a time, um, you know, that's, I think that that, you know, we're, we're probably being negatively impacted by that. Joe, you bring up a question, that, or you bring up what was going to be a question from uh, former Councilman Zach Reed, who was asking about that same thing, the digital divide. He's saying, as we go back to community meetings, a lot of folks are going to say, hey, I like Zoom. Let's stay here. I like StreamYard. Let's stay here. And that really is going to have an impact in neighborhoods of lesser monetary stress. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, I think hopefully we can collectively figure out some sort of healthy medium or, you know, maybe that's, that's something we can reach out to our block club uh, leaders to help us with is, you know, say one person in the block club is comfortable using zoom. Um, you know, maybe they can, can hold a, a safely organized gathering for, for everyone else in the club to participate and then have things kind of come down 
from our various leadership structures to communicate that way. So um, it, I think it's an opportunity to be creative, but it's it's definitely something that's going to need to be figured out. And you know, if that if that looks like public Wi-Fi across the city, I'm sure a lot of people will be very happy about that. I don't know uh, if that's realistic in the foreseeable future, but um, I'd love to hear more or talk more with uh, anyone who might be interested in that. Ricardo, he talks about the idea of public Wi-Fi or, you know, library Wi-Fi or citywide Wi-Fi, whatever. But if you don't have a laptop, that doesn't help. No, yeah, absolutely. So that's something that we're seeing as well. Um, many of our folks, you know, just rely on cell phones, right? Um, and so that's another thing that, you know, if part particularly folks are using smartphones, um, the first thing is connecting them to high-speed internet. Um, because they need a quality connection. And so one thing that we've been able to do through a partnership with uh, Metro Health, AT&T, Digital C, and a few others, um, we the entire Clark Ford neighborhood now has access to high-speed internet for um, under $20 a month. Um, in addition to that, we're looking to connect over 500 families um, to free internet for a year. And this is actually something that we're pursuing funding for um, and looking at actually improving that digital divide. Um, again, you know, the reality is we, we probably won't be able to buy you know, a computer for everyone, while many of our partners have been helping in that in that space. Um, you know, I think of something that like Esperanza, you know, a very good nonprofit organization that's in the neighborhood that works for families and youth, just a few weeks ago did a you know, computer drive. I think you could pick up a, a computer from them, a used computer from them for about 60 bucks, you know. So again, it's still, it's still some money, but significantly cheaper than what a unit would cost you anywhere else. Um, but I think the biggest part is just connecting folks first and foremost, and then figuring out, okay, well, now that you're connected, how can we use whatever tools you have, whether it's your cell phone, your tablet, you know, it may be an old PC or laptop that you have sitting around, you know, how can we get those up to, you know, running up to speed and, and you know, teaching folks how to use them so that they can effectively join in on the digital conversations. We've had a lot of conversations with uh, Eric Gordon of the schools because the schools didn't give away computers to kids when they left the buildings, but they did give them a lot of Chromebooks. Uh, tens of thousands of Chromebooks went out. Is that something, Joe, that CDCs could step into, say, you know, if you have, if you're a corporation, you have old laptops, funnel them through us, as Ricardo was saying. Is that something, not an area where you've been, but you would go? Uh, I, I'd say absolutely. Um, I know we we're fortunate to receive um, some computer donations and um, have set up a part of our office here as a, as a public computer lab. Um, obviously that's not really that useful right now with the, the COVID crisis because people can't really come and gather here in the same numbers that we um, designed the room for. So um, they can come in, in lower numbers and we're gonna be doing that with uh, one of our workforce development programs that uses the room. Um, but I think, yeah, it would not be too far a reach to go from, from, you know, putting public computer access here in the building where people circulate um, to, you know, coming up with some sort of distribution system. Um, yeah, I think that's a great idea. I know, Ricardo, you mentioned Digital C, and I know that there's also PCs for People that offers um, equipment, hotspots and, and computers for um, a lot lower than, um, you know, kind of like you were saying, a lot lower than a unit might otherwise cost. So I think there are partners in the city who are working on this issue too. And some of the role that I think the CDCs can offer is being able to connect people to those as well. 
right, we can be the conduit for those resources, you know, as long as we have right. willing partners at the table. Absolutely. You know, we've, we were actually able through PCs or people pre-COVID, we were able to connect and get some computers into the hands of folks. And we actually are doing a full inventory of all of our, our stations. And we'll probably have, end up having about 15 stations that we'll probably end up donating to folks as well. Awesome. Question here that was kind of specific, but I'm going to pervert it just a little bit here. Um, and I'll go to Joe because it asked Joe, talking about the idea of repurposing buildings. They're saying you have buildings that could be used. A Masonic temple in your area is one of those. All of you, do we see a possibility of taking what we're learning now and repurposing some of the facilities, some of the amenities that we have that maybe we'd ignored? Joe, you can start. Um, well, absolutely. There's there's possibility to do that, and you know that's something we're thinking about every day here. Um, so, uh, depending on how I should phrase it, you know, we're we, we're blessed with with uh, the asset of vacant land, but we also have a lot of uh, potential real estate development opportunities. Um, but you know, unfortunately, with the the private market not really functioning um, here. A lot of our projects for rehabs and um, new construction, which I'm working on, um, really require heavy subsidy. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we reach out to banks as well. You know, we're, we're a Community Reinvestment Act um, eligible uh, series of census tracts here. So we're, we're working with the Fed on, on applying for one of their programs. But, um, yeah, the Masonic Temple is is right here across from our office. Um, beautiful historic building. You could get eligible historic tax credits. I think repurposing those through the lens of community health uh, would be a great way to meet the needs of the neighborhood. Um, but it really just comes down to the funding. So if, if anyone uh, wants to talk further about that as well, um, please give me a call. Harris, same idea. Anything that you look at now in a different way than we might have looked at 12 weeks ago? Sure. Um, I think this was something we had already been thinking about, but that, you know, these past few weeks really highlighted. Again, we talked about the need for public space before. And um, similarly, Asia Town doesn't have a public space, um, but does have vacant land. And so I think um, there's, uh, you know, the conversations about being able to transform those into uh, a neighborhood serving space is uh, becomes more urgent. Um, and so, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it, um, it is great that it's on the forefront of more minds right now because I think that's what we need to make it happen. Ricardo, take us home. Same thought. No, that, absolutely. So I, I uh, echo both Karis and Joe's thoughts, um, looking at our physical infrastructure as well as our, our, our green space, right, whatever we, we call green space. Um, we need to be very intentional about the, I, the types of developments that we bring into the community. And not that we haven't always been, but now more than ever, um, we're, again, we're seeing that that traditional development model doesn't work in our communities, right? Um, to Joe's point, basically every project that comes online in the Metro West service area has to be has to be subsidized in some way, shape, or form. Well, how can we then use that subsidy as leverage to work with our developers to ensure that we are bringing amenities to the community that are re reflective of the needs of the community and, um, and are responsive um, to, to the situation that we're in now, but understanding that, you know, as we grow and, and, and we have more complex issues to deal with, that we need to be able to pivot our approach 
and ensuring that we are meeting the very fundamental needs of the community, you know, from the inception of the project and then also being willing to evolve over time. One of our core values that I think is common across all three of us um, at Midtown is that land isn't a vacant slate. So we have this as a resource, but it has to be responsive to our communities. Absolutely. Thank you all so very much. We're going to have to leave it there. It is 1130 now. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for today's forum. Joe Duffy, Real Estate Development Director for the Union Miles Development Corporation. Ricardo Leon, the Executive Director for Metro West Community Development Organization. And Kara Singh, the Asia Town Project Manager for Midtown Cleveland, Inc. The community partner, oh, thank you all. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. The community partner for today's forum is the American Planning Association, Ohio Chapter. We certainly appreciate their support. City Club Virtual Forums are sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gund Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, with additional support from the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation, and the many more generous members and sponsors and donors listed at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting this work when you make a contribution online.